Hello, this is Katherine Boyle. I'm taking Beth's podcast spot this week while she's at a ministry conference to bring you part one of a two-part conversation with Dr. Stephanie C. Holmes. Stephanie works extensively with neurodiverse Christian couples and families to help these families better understand, communicate, and connect with each other. Stephanie has personally experienced many of the same mental health and spiritual health challenges as the families and ministries we serve. This is part one of a must-hear podcast interview. Now, on to my conversation with Stephanie. Well, hello, this is Catherine Boyle from Key Ministry, and today's podcast is a real treat for me and hopefully for all of you who are listening, um, because I get to interview a guest, and today my very special guest is uh, Dr. Stephanie C. Holmes. So Stephanie may be familiar to... uh, our audience. She's presented at some of our conferences. Um, she's on other podcasts. I, I just heard her the other day on uh, Rising Above's podcast, um, but she does a lot of great work about um, about family support and marriage, where we're talking about um, relationships where autism or other neurodiversity is, uh, is also involved. So Stephanie, welcome today. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. I'm glad to be here. I love what y'all do and I'm all about supporting what y'all do. So it's a great collaboration. Yes, absolutely. Well, just in case our listeners are not familiar with you, if you would just talk a little bit about yourself, you know, who you are, um, tell us about your family, you know, what you've done as a professional and um, and then specifically your work around autism or, or neurodiversity and, and how those things have impacted your family as well. Okay, great. So um, this may not seem relevant, but it'll make sense as like we get into our story. Uh, but my husband and I are kind of childhood sweethearts. We knew each other when we were 11, 12 years old, raised in the same church, youth group, all that good stuff. Um, we got married young and um, I knew um, that I wanted to go into counseling at some point when I was in um, college. So I go do the things you pursue that you do. Um, you get your LPC, you get your master's and um this also is relevant to the story because I remember specifically um, the, D- the DSM-4 or the Diagnostic Statistic Manual, the fourth edition had just come out and it was talking about um, Asperger syndrome. And so this was a new, a new diagnosis added like high functioning autism. And the professor said, I would never meet someone with Asperger's. And that Asperger's was so rare because back then, you know, it was like one in 10,000, you right. know, people. <laughs> And that we only just really needed to know this criteria because we needed to rule things out and make sure you know the difference between this and a personality disorder and this and depression and this and ADHD and la la la. So I tucked that away in my head and I was like, oh, okay, Asperger's, that's kind of interesting sounding and tucked it away. Um, Started my career as a marriage and family um, counselor and really felt called to the body of Christ. There's a lot of other secular counselors doing good things that I really feel like the body of Christ needed some help and understanding mental health. Right. Um, just yeah. started, was on my way, living the good Christian dream. And then um, my daughter started having um, issues at church, started having issues at school. And that little word kept coming to the back of my mind that I was never supposed to see. And right. um, lo and behold, she did get diagnosed in 2005, 2006, with what was then called Asperger's. And it was much more difficult because autism Asperger's was considered a male issue. Right. Right. So they wanted to give her pediatric bipolar and intermittent explosive disorder and like, you know, all these other things. But 
she ended up with six or seven diagnoses. And it's like, you know, when you put all those together, that's the autism spectrum. Right. That day, that diagnosis day really started shifting our family, started shifting my ministry. And then pretty much now 90% of what I do is with neurodiverse marriages, family, and young adults. Why am I not surprised that 90% of your work is around that? Because I mean, I personally, you know, am familiar with so many people that are on the spectrum or so many people that, you know, you talk to them for a few minutes and, and you suspect it's probably true. And um, there are things around autism that I think that have always been in humanity. So I'm not surprised. I mean, I, I, I'm kind of stumbling around here to think, to say this in a nice way, but, um, but like there was, there was somebody in my church growing up, a, an older gentleman, and I would be a hundred percent sure that he was on the spectrum, but of course, nobody ever called it that, you know, he was just, he was just kind of a little eccentric and, um, you know, very capable human being. He was an engineer, you know, not surprisingly, um, but, you know, from, not just that example, but other examples, I, you know, I really believe this has been around for a long time and, you know, we're just, it's just taken a long time to get language to be able to describe, you know, these kinds of things that we do see repeatedly. It's not just the one or two behaviors, but it's like kind of a whole system of things that you see um, in individuals that, you know, have these kinds of, um, neurodiversity or the, the challenges that go along with that. So um, so I know when we're talking about, you know, say traditional disabilities, you know, the, the you know, a child who has to use a wheelchair all the time or, um, you know, having a child who has Down syndrome or something like that. Um, a lot of times the parents or the caregivers end up really having a lot of mental health challenges themselves because it, it's just, a, it's a very, isolated and difficult life that most people don't anticipate. And so, um, you know, there's, it's, it's very understandable that, that those people have uh, a lot of mental health needs and need support. But um, talk, if you will, a little bit about, you know, did having a child who was neurodiverse have a negative impact on your own mental health, you know, and, and then, um, and then when you realized later on that perhaps you were married to somebody who was on the spectrum, you know, how did that impact your own mental health? Yeah. So, um, you know, at first, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a type A person. If you're familiar with disc, I'm a D I'm a drive. Um, so I'm kind of like, you know, at first you can't get me, can't break, can't break me down. You know, we're moving forward. So that's, I'm, I'm a very driven, strong personality. So I think that on one hand is a, is a protective factor. Um, another protective factor was having at that point in time, both of our parents near us, all four grandparents alive and involved in, you know, interacting with our family. Um, so that helps with some of the isolation because our daughter could go see the grandparents like one-on-one -on -one and have special days with them. And that would kind of give me some respite. But what was really more damaging to my mental health than being the mother of someone on the spectrum was dealing with the school system and someone on the spectrum. So yeah. I think my mental health was more poorly impacted by um, the way that we were treated. Um, yeah. Definitely that you're a burden, um, ugly things said about you. I mean, one of the, the school psychologists tried to um, 
get me branded with Munchausen's by proxy and um, tried to have um, custody taken away of our child, um, which is one of the reasons we moved to Georgia out of North Carolina. But, you know, so just the stress is like, you know, my home life is already stressful enough and you're supposed right. to be partnering and collaborating with me right. and making it 10 times worse. Right. So I think that was really poor on my mental health. Um, church became an issue. Now the children's pastor, her and her husband were amazing. Um, whenever I talk about some things that didn't go well at our past church, they were amazing, but churches rely on volunteers. So right. the way the structure was, um, there would be kind of the big room where everybody met for children's church that went well. Usually I never got a call to come pick up my child from there because she loved every second of it. She loved that couple. She knew that couple wanted them there and, and loved it. However, after that, you go into breakout rooms <laughs> and right. is where the problems <laughs> ensue. Um, and so a little shout out to really train your volunteers, guys. But um, so especially when volunteers are going to be different from week to week to week to week. Right. Um, my daughter had tremendous food allergies. And so they wouldn't work with me on like, well, just tell me what snack you're going to have. I'll bring my own. Snack. I'm not even, I'm not even asking you to have something gluten-free and color-free. I'll bring my own, you know? Right. So my mental health, I think was more impacted by those who were supposed to be helping me. And then I think even more than mental health, my spiritual health yes. was really impacted. I mean, I, would end up with some resentment. I would end up with like, wait a minute, you people call yourself the church and the body of Christ. And I right. feel like an outsider in my own church body. Um, so another protective pastor was one specific pastor who really ministered to me during that. Mm -hmm. He didn't know about autism. He didn't know how to help my family, but he really just poured into me and let me say my truth and let me talk about what I was going through without condemning. Right. Um, so those I think were protective factors, but then my physical health, um, I would get adrenal, adrenal fatigue, like twice, um, mm -hmm. in that time period or heavy migraines, just for like when you're pushing so hard and I was working a full-time job in counseling. So between advocating with the school, running a ministry, running a counseling ministry, dealing with this, everything that comes with autism and dealing with the people who are not helping me, but are pushing back and making it worse. I right. think thing. And for the longest time when our marriage wasn't really great, I thought it was all of that. Mm -hmm. Then when Sydney was stable and we moved to Georgia and I was like, okay, wait, something's still off here. Like things right. are stable and, and the church is good and school is good. And then, um, damn, was like, I, I went to a, a conference and the person was describing adult autism. And I was like, oh my word. And my, the guy says the lady in the second row has just figured out her husband's on the spectrum. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, let's have a conversation. And I was like, I think you're on the spectrum. And he's like, I've thought that for years. And I was like, thanks for sharing. <laughs> yeah. I was so focused on, you know, Sydney and her presentation with more outward dysregulation. Mm -hmm. Dan is a quiet guy. If he's, mm -hmm. he shuts down and goes internal, right. And more of an escape artist, like conflict res, uh, avoider. So, and here I am, I'm a, I'm a pretty big personality. So I'm, I can be overwhelming to him because I can be an overwhelming person. So, and then our family was overwhelming because then our little one's ADHD. So we had ADHD and autism and an autistic parent and a counselor, you know, all coexisting. Right. Right. So it was really tough. But I think from that, the spiritual issue was really what scarred me the most. I feel the most scarred and let down in the spiritual world. I, I guess I kind of expect 
public school is going to do what public school does. You know what? I can expect this from a non-Christian to not do the right thing. Right. Right. Christian from leadership, from people who are supposed to be helping and pouring in that felt like a double stab um, to the heart. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And and I just want to make it clear. Your daughter was in Christian school before you guys moved to Georgia. Yes, she was in Christian school and public school. So when you're kicked out of three different Christian schools, you are not getting back into Christian school. <laughs> because yes. you yeah. <laughs> yeah, and um, I mean, and, and I love what you said about that one pastor who you, know, you said he didn't have any kind of autism knowledge or expertise or training, but he cared. You know, he just listened and he cared. And, uh, you know, that is, that is, as impactful, if not more so, I think, than, you know, any kind of, any kind of special needs program we could have, because it's like the whole, you know, if you do things without love, then it's just meaningless. You know, it, it just, it it boils down to, uh, you got to care for that person who is hurting. And anyway, I mean, and oftentimes when you do that, you learn all kinds of things that, um, you know, we wish weren't in our churches and in our, you know, in our Christian schools and um, and the way human beings treat each other. So um, I'm so glad that you had that because, yeah, it, I mean, I, I think I thought a lot over the years, you know, like when families have this kind of experience, particularly if they, you know, there's a lot of, there's, it, it's very easy to Historically, it's been very easy to be a Christian in our culture, you know, and to do the Christianese kinds of things, you know, go to church on Sunday morning and and maybe go to Christian school, but maybe not be all that deeply rooted and grounded in your faith. I mean, just being totally honest here. And if you have something like this happen and you are not deeply rooted and grounded, I mean, how easy is it for people to just like turn their back on God and think that, you know, that God has abandoned them or, you know, that he just doesn't exist and he doesn't care. So um, I was definitely in that faith crisis. Like that's where I was headed. I was like, I mean, our interaction was like, Hey, I just want to let you know, I'm done counseling, done the prayer ministry. Like I'm done. God doesn't mm -hmm. love me. He doesn't care about my family. So my Mm -hmm. kids can go here and get some good spiritual formation. I'm peacing out. I'm done. He's like, Whoa, Whoa, Whoa. Let's come in and talk about it. <laughs> you know, let's come in and talk and let's figure out, you know, what's going on because part of my early church history, and I don't know if I'll get in trouble for saying this, but um, was really based on prosperity doctrine. So mm-hmm. that was where my faith crisis happened. Because if you did certain things and you claimed certain things and you lived a good life, you are not supposed to have pain and suffering. Right. And the dark side of the prosperity gospel is if you have a disability, if you have a diagnosis, if you have a financial crunch, something's wrong with you or your faith or God is mad at you. That's right. In that time period with all that was going on in the school and even some people at church telling me like, what have you done to upset God or your life isn't in order or like what deep sin or generational sin do you have in your life? It was like, Mm -hmm. if this is what God does to people, I don't think I want to be in a relationship with this kind of God. Like if if he's Mm -hmm. causing us to suffer on purpose and even though I followed all of his rules, he's not there for me. And my church isn't there for me. Like I'm done. And I was tapping out when that pastor stepped in and said, wait, wait, <laughs> That's, mm-hmm. you don't have a good doctrine of suffering. You don't have a right. good um, understanding of who God's character and nature is. You've been focusing on the rules of religion and not the character of God. And that, that was the shift. And that's what kind of started pulling me out of a very deep faith crisis. 
Well, and, and I find it so interesting that so many people in the world that we kind of, you know, work in and, 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 and how, you know, you and, and key ministry intersect is that um, so many people have been in a very similar place uh, because, you know, I mean, just life does not meet our expectations. And, you know, you can tell people that and tell them a million different ways, but until it kind of becomes personal and it's something you just have to face every single day then it's like, it doesn't really, it doesn't really land. And, um, it, and, and so it, it's almost like, you know, people either chart a new path and, and what I'm seeing in you is that you charted the new path, you know, it wasn't an instantaneous thing, but God helps you really develop what scripture promises that we're going to get like, you know, treasures hidden in darkness, you know, that, that he's going to reveal things to us that are precious that you don't, you know, that you only get when you're walking through that valley of the shadow. It's not something that, that you, that you're going to notice when it's, you know, all sunshine and, and lollipops in your life. So, um, yeah, so that is, um, I, I appreciate your honesty in that because it's, um, you know, it does not help anybody to minimize or to, to try to hide you know, what these kinds of challenges can do to your faith. But, um, but knowing that God, you know, but God still is there and, and that you can see, you know, that you've gone on to have this incredible ministry with, because of your personal experience and, you know, and, and now, you know, if, I know you, well, are you still an LPC? Do you still have that license or do you? So, so when we moved from North Carolina to Georgia, um, Georgia didn't reciprocate. And so, I okay. mean, to go into like, you can be a board certified Christian counselor, but not a licensed professional counselor. And then as things were changing in our culture, I decided it wasn't worth it <laughs> to be yeah. licensed in a state and then be under what the state would like you to do in certain situations that you may have Christian principles that go against. I'll say it that way. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Very nice, nice way to say it. So, um, but, but now, I mean, so your, your whole focus really seems to be on you know, autism support, uh, marriage and family support. Um, it, and truly, I don't think that there's a lot out there in terms of, uh, you know, neurodiverse marriage support. And so, you know, I just, I just applaud you for taking this on because it's hard to be a pioneer and, um, and it is so very needed uh, because I've said this many times that, you know, when, when kids, you know, we're ministering to kids with disabilities, but they grow up, you know, and when they have these challenges, you know, that are related to autism, you know, maybe they look a little different when they're older, but, but typically the challenges aren't going to go away. So it's so important that supports are out there for, for families who, you know, who are adults now parenting kids with autism, but when those kids grow up and they get married and they have families of their own. So, so, you know, what are some ways that that autism can negatively impact a marriage? You know, like if you said that your husband is a person who tends to like be quiet and go inside. Um, well, you know, that's one way that people express, you know, autistic traits. But some people are the ones who like explode and they melt down or they, you know, they're sensory seekers or they're sensory avoiders. So talk a little bit about what those kinds of traits and behaviors can, can do to a marriage. Yeah. So, um, earlier this year, I started research and it's in a peer reviewed journal. And first, first of all, we found out is the, 
um, 86% of adults who were diagnosed were diagnosed over the age of 30. And the biggest um, age group was 40 to 49. Then the next age group was like 50 to 59, 30 to 39. So someone's usually married and possibly has a child by then. So um, because of this Asperger's, like um, the research calls them the lost generation. Because there's this whole group of men who and women that missed this diagnostic criteria until high functioning and autism level one and all of that came in. So they were missed. And so add in the Christian culture, if you are in a really, really conservative space where the man is the authority or the head, so he has the final say, I add that in the mix with some maybe really black and white pharisaical view of scripture and someone who can blow up and dysregulate and I get to do whatever I want because I'm the man of the house and I'm undiagnosed and I'm supposed to submit and be quiet and happy and not say anything and not tell anyone and not undermine my husband. So that dynamic can become a very toxic situation for families. And so usually what's happened in the trends that I'm seeing is a child or a grandchild got diagnosed. And then as you start researching and looking up your family tree We know, um, according to a 2019 JAMA 2.1 million participant report, 80% hereditary. So if you've got a child or a grandchild, then you've probably got some some adults that are undiagnosed on the spectrum. So if we just kind of go back to some of the diagnostic criteria, I mean, as you mentioned, the first one, if someone is a big emotional dysregulator and by 40 and 50 years old, they have still not learned how to regulate those kinds of feelings, that is very scary it's, it's disturbing when a five or a 13 year old is dysregulated in the day. Yes. But when someone's 40, 50 and 60 and they're dysregulating in that way, it's terrifying mm-hmm. to um, a spouse. And then when you don't know the name of what's going on, they just think, oh, it's just rage. You just need some anger management. It's right. way bigger than that. So right. that's one way. But then the ladies who are listening, if you're in another kind of like, well, wait a minute, Stephanie, for those who shut down and then don't talk for one, two and three days, that's not scary, but that's really emotionally painful that we had a conversation right. two days ago and he hasn't circled back around. In fact, he may have disappeared for a day or two because he's so overwhelmed. And here I am left with um, these emotions and this painful thing in our marriage and he's gone. Right? He just mm-hmm. disappeared. So, so that dysregulation is a big piece. And then theory of mind is another huge, um, it's becoming very controversial to talk about this. The adult autistic community doesn't like this being talked about, but it's the truth. Um, Theory of mind and perspective taking is part of the autism spectrum. It's how you get the diagnosis. And theory of mind is um, perspective taking, empathy, compassion, being able to show compassionate care. We know for sure people on the spectrum um, um, have feelings and can show compassion, but it's the, what do I do with it? I see that you're sad and you need something right now. Um, what can I do to help you? So we took um, sympathy and turned it into empathy. Whereas in many situations, maybe the spouse who is neurotypical needs something and the autistic spouse is like, okay, I see you're hurting and needing. Um, this would be a great time to change the oil in your car. Yeah, that would be helpful. Um, right. The grocery store for you. I right, so right. And is it important? Yes. Is it the right thing to do in that moment when someone right. probably wants a hug? Probably not. So mm-hmm. when you put that on spin repeat for a year, a decade, two decades, and you still don't even know what this is called, that causes a lot of confusion. Yes. 
Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's totally understandable that, you know, and, and when you were talking about that, it's, it's, it's an inability to take the perspective of the other person. You know, it's, it's not able to, to see as they see. And you would expect if you're married to somebody that they could see, you know, things the way that you're seeing them, but that just often is not the case. And, and it's pretty easy to see that, you know, that, that creates this incredible emotional distance in marriages and so much so that people can end up, you know, really, you know, if they, if they stay together, but, you know, but it, it's not a, a good kind of marriage situation, they can really start to think of the other partner as the enemy. And I love that you actually have, you know, teaching and, um, and information on your website about enemy mode. I think that's just such a brilliant way to describe this because, um, because that's exactly what it is, is that you see the other person, not as, not as, you know, this person that you fell in love with when you were young and, you know, and, you know, that you've created a life with, but, but, you know, as, as somebody that is opposed to everything that, that you need and want. So if you would just talk a little bit about enemy mode and, you know, how people kind of get into that and how they can get out of it too. Yeah. Um, so we um, came across the work of Dr. Jim Wilder, um, who wrote the book Escaping Enemy Mode. And the and the book says nothing about autism or the spectrum or neurodiversity. But with the background I have in neuroscience, as different brain circuits were being talked about, like or the amygdala or the orbital prefrontal cortex or and I was like, wait, 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 these are things that are really impacted and challenged in people. So I would stop the book and I would look it up and I would say, yep, that's the same. That's the same circuit. That That's right. And so and he talked about something called simple enemy mode, which is unintentional kind of relational harm. And it simply is like um, you've kind of turned the relationship circuit off in your brain. He calls them RCs. And um what I found fascinating is that that circuit, the OFC is neuroplastic throughout your whole life. So mm. while there's no curing someone of autism and we, and we don't talk about that because neurodiversity is a valid part of the human existence, but right. relational health is always good. No matter what your brain type is, we should all be working on better relationships and being emotionally healthy people. So when I read that, like, oh my goodness, the OFC can be changed. You can learn to turn your relational circuits on. You can learn to build joy with other people. And essentially, um, like if your relational circuits are off and somebody comes and interrupts you and you now see them as a threat or an object to be dealt with, you're in enemy mode. Mm -hmm. So that happens a lot in neurodiverse mm -hmm. marriage. Maybe the neurodivergent person is in one of their special activities and a child or a spouse walks in and says, Hey, can we do whatever? And they get the big explosion because the relationship circuits were off. You interrupted me. You became a threat to my environment and I am treating you like a threat. So I was like, wow, armed with this knowledge, we can teach people like you can turn your relationship circuits on or you can turn them off. And if you don't know how to turn them on, let's practice and get better at that because a uh, joy is fuel of the brain. And when you all these growing up about the joy of the Lord being my strength, Literally in neuroscience, joy fuels your brain. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have it, it drains your brain. Mm -hmm. So um, the for that elements of being able to build joy and build attachment together, no matter what your neurotype is, that if you're intentional about turning those relationship circuits on, no matter, again, you don't, I tell my guys, you don't get a pass. Your neurology does not give you a pass to build joy. So that was the most um, 
groundbreaking research that I've read because this is hope. It just doesn't mean, okay, we are what we are. We're a neurodiverse couple. We're just going to struggle forever. No, there are some things we can do to change brain circuitry and build a new relationship. We're still going to be quirky and different than the other couples. That's fine. Quirky and different is good, but it's got to be healthy and it's got to be spiritually um, formation. And you just don't get a pass. That's what I tell them all the time. You don't get a pass from the fruits of the spirit and joy of your brain neurology. No, thank you. Yeah. (laughs) Well, and what you're talking about sounds a lot like, um, social skills kinds of training. And, and I know it's a little bit different, but, and I know, you know, some people on the spectrum don't, you know, appreciate that sort of thing, but it can go a long way towards helping people really understand, you know, what other people's expectations are, you know, if they're on the spectrum and, and that's not something that comes naturally to them, which, you know, is not, which is absolutely the case. And for a lot of people on the spectrum. Um, So, I mean, it sounds to me like, once you got the diagnosis for your child and then later for your husband, that that really unlocked a lot of things for your family that, that, I mean, it took you in a direction you definitely didn't anticipate, but um, that, you know, it was something that ended up being very helpful for you. And, and I've seen, um, maybe not so much anymore, but definitely when my kids were younger, you know, there was, there was just a lot of hesitancy to get diagnoses because of the label that would go along with a diagnosis. But, you know, I I have encouraged people for a long time, you know, people are going to make their own labels based on your child's behavior. So it's really better to get the right one so that they can recognize that, you know, this is not just willful misbehavior. This is something entirely different and requires a different approach. Um, And it, you know, it also allows not only, you know, personal interaction, but also, you know, if they need medical treatment or, you know, just so that, that you know, doctors and therapists and, and everybody else in their life is treating it correctly. So, so you know, if, if you would just share a couple of things about what diagnosis did for your daughter and then later for your husband as well. Yeah. So I want to um, give a shout out to my friend Faye, who came up with the D's and, and I sort of put this out there for you guys on this is why it's a pet peeve of mine for people who say they don't believe in labels, but it's really important to know the D's and that's what's a difference diagnosis and disability and what is disrespect and disobedience. Mm-hmm. If it's disrespect and disobedience, then yes, there's a consequence that comes that's with right. willful behavior. But if it's a difference diagnosis or um, disability, you can't punish disability out of someone. You can't punish a difference right. in someone. And so many times, especially in schools and churches, when they see a certain behavior, especially in Southern culture, like being disrespected is like, oh, the worst thing ever. And yes. like, especially in certain settings and you better give eye contact and you better do certain things. And yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. At least in Southern church culture. So, you know, my daughter would get just a lot of um, negativity about her behavior and she's sinful and she's naughty. And it's in the, um, the book, which we'll talk about in a minute, but she struggled. And every time I read this, I get tearful how an eight, nine and 10 year old can struggle with the verse about being fearfully and wonderfully made and think that verse does not apply to me Mm. based on how my church has treated me. How Mm. could I be fearfully and wonderfully made when the school doesn't want me? The church doesn't want me. Um, yeah, mom and dad say it. Yeah. My grandparents say it, but they have to, because they're my family. Right. 
<laughs> right. But, um, you know, the other people in my life don't seem to see me as fearfully and wonderfully and made. So I am all about early um, intervention and early diagnosis because it is harder the older someone gets as a teenager, young adult, midlife adult to be processing they're on the autism spectrum. But it's absolutely right. necessary so that we you know what you're dealing with in your relationships. But um, I think it's all about how we tell our children about their difference, um, their disability or diagnosis. I mean, you can come with a long face and this is terrible and all of that. I was like, hey, I just want to tell you about a way that you're different. Here's why you're having some struggles. It's got a name. It's right. called this. Right. Uh, because like you said, I, I use those same words, <laughs> Catherine, people use labels and it might be disrespectful or stupid or lazy or belligerent or you know some other horrible label that has nothing right. to do with the child that's character defaming. That's right. Autism or ADHD or processing disorder describes what's going on in their brain and their neurology system. These other words are character and personality and um, shame in right. words. So I think it's really important as we kind of get behind um, a little bit. I mean, every movement has some toxic pieces, but the neurodiversity space that says, you know, we need all kinds of brains and all kinds of inventors and statesmen and politicians and people who have done really big things had a neurodiversity. That's right. We need, That's right. we need them in our society. <laughs> if you can't wait to hear more, be sure to subscribe to the podcast to get the notification when next week's part two episode is live. Stephanie will be one of the presenters at Key Ministries Disability in the Church 2024 conference, May 1st through 3rd, 2024, Orlando, Florida. We'd love to see you there. Visit keyministry.org for all the conference details and to register. And if there's someone you know who should hear this podcast, be sure to share in your social media and give us a five-star review to expand our reach. Thank you for listening to Key Ministry, the podcast.